I'm Tim Gombas, and this is Faith Improvised. It's a podcast where I can think out loud and talk with friends about things that interest me. Books, films, sports, music, culture, politics, the wonders and complexities of being Christian in this world, and my academic discipline, biblical studies. You're welcome to email me if you like at faithimprovised at gmail.com. In this episode, I recommend a fascinating new book on American culture over the last 20 years through the lens of the war on terror, and I talk about Paul's argument in Romans 3. So I'm taking a pretty big risk here. I meant to, or at least I had planned to um, record this episode in my office so I could be away from the house and the killer kittens that we have in our home right now. Uh, but you know the school year is about to start and there's a lot of buzz around the halls and um, I can't really guarantee that I would be undisturbed. So I'm here in my kitchen and any minute, I'm sure that there are going to be some kittens pouncing on my feet. I'm standing here in shorts and bare feet. And um, what they like to do when they get up from a nap is either sort of walk on my feet, sit on my feet, uh, or get a little bit playful and pounce on them and uh, nip at my ankles. And everything around the house is fair game for like fighting and batting around and pouncing. Of course, they do that with each other. They're two brothers. They're the cutest things in the universe, and that they've been so fun to have in our house. Um, but hopefully, when they wake up, they won't be too much of a distraction. We did decide on names. We did not have names until last week. We went to the vet, and we had to give names. And we went with what uh, Ann and Andy had named them, uh, from whom uh, we got the kittens. And uh, since they're orange and white, uh, they had named them, and maybe it was their kids that did it. Uh, Fred and George after the red-haired Weasley twins. So Fred and George, that's what we're going with. Although we don't really call them that so much that we call them by a bunch of other names, pet names, that kind of stuff. Anyway, uh, on the baseball front, the Cubs are absolutely hopeless. I'm not going to spend much time talking about them. I'm not going to spend any time talking about them. Uh, Austin, before the season had begun, uh, emailed me with a little bit of, you know, give me a little bit of grief about uh, how many wins the Cubs were uh, predicted to have this year. And um, those predictions were pretty wrong. I think the Cubs were predicted to win like 78 games. I think they have currently 53 wins. They're not going to get to 78. It's it's unbelievable. Uh, they've had two 11-game losing streaks. I think the last one ran to 12 games. And... Um, Oh, it's been just such a disaster. They lost yesterday, nine to one. My W flag uh, has flown like one day this month out front. It's been bad. It's been really bad. Uh, interestingly, across town, uh, the White Sox are having an incredible year. Uh, it's just that in Chicago, it's Chicago is is a great sports town. It is dominated by the Chicago Bears. Chicago is a Bears town. Uh, after that sort of comes the Cubs and then maybe the Bulls. And it's it's not really right that uh, the White Sox are sort of an overlooked franchise there uh, on the South side, but it's, uh, it's just kind of how it goes in the city of Chicago. And, um, but it's a wonderful story. They've just got an incredible team. Kenny Williams, the general manager has put together an unbelievable team. And um, 
against a lot of predictions, Tony LaRusso, the manager, um, has just done a great job. The chemistry has worked. It did not seem like that was actually going to work out. The um, the previous manager, Rick Renteria, was was doing a fantastic job. But out of nowhere, uh, the owner, Jerry Reinsdorf, decided to hire uh, Tony LaRusso, uh, in his words, to atone for the one mistake, the, the sort of the massive regret that he has in his life that he fired Tony La Russa as manager of the White Sox way back in the early 80s. Um, and Rick, poor Rick Renteria uh, took the fall. It's really sad because Rick Renteria is a great guy and a really good manager. He was part of the Cubs turnaround. And um, back in, uh, I believe it was the winter of 2014, right after the season ended in 2014, um, uh, Joe Madden became available from the Tampa uh, Tampa Bay Rays, and the Cubs just fired Rick Renteria because they were able to hire Joe Madden. So both Chicago franchises have sort of done Rick Renteria dirty, which is, you know, kind of a bummer. Sort of a it ends up being kind of a stain on his record. I mean, who's going to remember Rick Renteria as manager of the Cubs and White Sox uh, when he was followed by such big names. Anyway, it's the way life goes. What are you going to do? Uh, I'm still going to pay attention to baseball as the fall progresses, but um, it is just a lot of sad sights these days, especially for Cub fans, I must say. Uh, I got a very interesting email that sparked a lot of um, thoughts and a couple conversations that I had with some other people uh, from John, and um, I'm going to read that or summarize it, um, taking out a few details and share some thoughts about it uh, because it relates to a lot of the things that are going on in our culture these days and uh, sort of things that are just hotly contested and hotly debated. Uh, John said, I live in Washington State with my wife and uh, we both work in the healthcare field. The governor is requiring all healthcare workers to be vaccinated or to be terminated. Uh, we both are vaccinated, but we feel pretty strongly that people should have the right to choose. As a Christian, I'm caught between my inherited evangelical nationalistic way of thinking on one hand, and on the other, laying down your rights as Jesus did. I've also heard you express concerns over uh, an emerging fascist government and the potentially rocky road ahead. How do you think that we can best be image bearers of God in this situation? Well, uh, a bunch of things that I would like to say about that. Um, first of all, there's, I think it's really important to always be keeping this in mind that, um, Christians exist in the world and also don't exist in the world. So, I mean, this would be the starting point from where I would think about this whole topic. Um, kind of coming back to the, the foundation of who Christians are and the way that the new Testament configures that is that we are people that are you know, living in this world, but we're also not in this world. So for example, when Paul um, or and Peter does this, when and the writer of Hebrews in a sense does as well, when they address their audiences, uh, their audiences are people who live in, for example, Colossae, but also don't live in Colossae. They're people that live in Colossae. Yes, they're situated there in the city, but they also exist in the heavenlies. They also exist in heaven. 
And that's not some spiritual kind of existence on, on a Jewish worldview, on a Jewish way of conceiving of all reality. Um, there is already a concrete, actual world in the heavenly realm that is where uh, Christian people genuinely belong. And that uh, concrete, actual world in the heavenly realm is the world that in the end, when God comes to uh, judge and to save and to set all things right at the future day of the Lord or the day of Christ, that heavenly world is going to come down and overtake this world. That's one way of kind of um, understanding the transition from this present age to the future age in the in the conception of the New Testament writers. Um, you know, in another sense, I mean, the writer of Hebrews sort of portrays things as this present world being purged or purified and then going on into the kingdom of God or becoming the fullness of the new creation. These are just varieties of ways of explaining that transition from the present age to the future age. Um, is it going to be a world that comes down? Is it going to be a world that is purged? I don't think it really matters so much as uh, the reality that, you know, in the New Testament, and, it, and this is how Christians ought to view themselves, Christians understand themselves as people that belong to that heavenly world, which is the future. Christians belong to that future world. That's actually where we live. We live in that future realm. We're, we're um, in the words of Hebrews, we're going to inherit um, that's, uh, that, that kingdom that cannot be shaken. And that is this world in the heavens that Jesus is already gone to, um, and he's sitting as Lord over that world. It's a world that's prepared for us. Uh, it's a world in which we already live in. And uh, the task of being Christian as communities is to live in this present world as if that future world is already here. We are the ones who sort of live in this world as if we're living in that heavenly world or as if we're living in that future world. Um, so that's what I mean by saying that um, we we sort of live here and we also don't live here. Um, another way that Paul gets at that is to say that we have been crucified to this world. Like we are, Christians ought to regard themselves as dead to this world, um, but alive to the world to come. Like we're, we're living in that world and we live as if that world is already here. Um, the reason why that is really, really important is because, um, or I should say, what, what the New Testament writers are getting at when they talk about that, um, is that this present age, which is not just time, but is all the values and all the conceptions and all the ideologies of this age, um, the current time is also a way of life, a way of thinking, a way of seeing ourselves, a way of seeing other people. And that whole way of life in this present age is a way of life to which Christians have died. We don't play by those rules anymore. We now live and we play by the rules of the age to come. Um, and I'm saying all that because the ideology and the way of thinking that sort of dominates America um, and that orients it and that undergirds it is that it is a liberal democratic order. Now, um, don't think in terms of like liberals and conservatives uh, or Republicans or Democrats. All of us in America today are liberal Democrats. Uh, you're a liberal Democrat if you're not a, um, a theocrat. Uh, we live in a liberal democracy in that we, we don't live in a monarchy. Uh, we, you know, individuals have freedom. 
that's basically how it goes. Um, that's basically a shorthand way of saying liberal, like free, democratic. You know, each person, each person has rights, has, um, you know, regarded with uh, uh, dignity and um, et cetera. So we live in this liberal democracy and, and according to a liberal democratic sort of state of play, each of us has rights. And one of the really complicated realities about living in a liberal democratic order, and this is why we have so many lawyers in America, um, is that oftentimes rights collide. And um, you know, living in this world involves a negotiation of rights. And you know, we assert our rights. I have the right to do this in public. Well, I have the right to not see you doing that in public, so I'm going to sue you. So that we, anyway, that's sort of the way it goes in America. And um, if you're brought up in a liberal democratic order, you're told from the time you're young that you have rights and you, you have the right to not be treated in certain ways and all that kind of stuff. Um, anyway, I say all that to say that one of the foundational ways of thinking, it seems to me, in being Christian is to consider myself dead to the liberal democratic order and alive to the kingdom of God. So I'm a person that does not inhabit America, and I'm also someone who does inhabit America, but I inhabit America as if I'm living in the kingdom of God. So I'm not a person, uh, at least this is my task and my aim as a Christian, as a confessing Christian person, um, I'm not a person that is going to assert my rights. Uh, because Paul in 1 Corinthians 8, 1 to 11, 1, that's one textual unit. Why the chapter ends, uh, why that, anyway, why the chapter divisions were put in like they were, I'll never know. That's aside from the main point here. But in 1 Corinthians 8, 1 to 11, 1, uh, Paul at the very end calls the Corinthians to uh, imitate him as he's imitating Christ. Uh, and Christ did not assert his rights. And Paul does not assert, assert his rights as an apostle. And he's rebuking the Corinthians because they are a community that are all asserting their rights. And that is causing loads of problems. And um, for Paul, the gospel is about rights surrender. To participate in the gospel is to live in a way that involves rights surrender. Um, and this is what Jesus gets at. In, well, in all the Gospels, when he calls disciples to take up your cross, that, that is to die to this present order and all of its rules and all of its ways of being and thinking and relating and to, to go the way of the cross. So for me, uh, the way that I see myself is um, I'm not a person that will be considering asserting rights or saying, you know, don't tread on me um, or I have the right to do what I want or whatever. I'm an American. Um, that is that that is a way of talking that is unavailable to confessing Christians. That's just not how Christians talk. Uh, that's how Americans talk. Um, but this is why I may have said before that being Christian and being American are in so many ways fundamentally incompatible, um, or at least it, it should make it that reality far more complicated. So. Um, yeah, that makes me a person that lives in West Michigan like I do. It makes me live in such a way that I'm out for the common good, where I'm out for 
thinking about how to foster flourishing in my community, I'm not thinking about how I can have my rights protected uh, as a confessing Christian person. Uh, so for me, when it comes to thinking about vaccines and about um, becoming vaccinated so that I can help uh, to stop the spread of this virus, um, I'm all for it because um, there may be some uh, short-term implications of that. And there's a risk, of course, but I'm not a person that is going to be um, selfish and um, you know protect myself at the expense of my community. That's be, to my mind, that's just a natural outflow of being Christian. Um, and this is the difficulty. I, I guess I would also say we we kind of all have to reckon with the reality that um, you know we work for companies and we work for businesses and in America, as it for whatever reason, this is kind of what um, the government decided within the last hundred years. Corporations have been identified legally as individuals, so corporations and businesses have rights. Uh, and here's one here's one area where rights collide. Businesses can require that people are uh, vaccinated or wear masks or whatever, and we as individuals can fight that by asserting our rights. And now we run into this situation um, that liberal democracy causes. We are we're, uh, and philosophers saw this a couple hundred years ago. Uh, the brilliant, brilliant book Pankaj Mishra's book uh, Age of Anger uh, tells this story. Uh, at the inception of liberal democracy, which was so hopeful and like, wow, each individual being able to pursue their own course of upward mobility and accumulate stuff and build their own prestige and assert their own rights. Uh, I believe it was uh, Rousseau who said, this is going to lead to basically a war of all against all. And that's what we see in this sort of fully formed and uh, full flowering of liberal democracy in America. We have a lot of people really angry at each other with everybody asserting their rights. And so, uh, you know, living in this world and um, in the situation that John described where you've got um, medical workers working for the state or working for a hospital, this is part of the deal that we all sign up to when we get a job um, where we work for some kind of larger entity, which can assert its rights and its right to uh, demand that anybody that is working for it, you know, meet their criteria. And if there are criteria that um, employees do not meet, then they can assert their rights. And unfortunately, um, I mean, that that's just the reality. Uh, in, in that kind of a situation, um, it seems to me that it would be a possible Christian way of being um, to use my status within any kind of an organization to advocate for the fair and merciful treatment of somebody that I know that does not want to be vaccinated um, to maybe find out about creating an exception or try to bring about conversation so that there could be dialogue. I mean, there are people that um, are concerned about vaccines for a variety of reasons. In my opinion, uh, so many of the people, so many people, in my opinion, the vast majority of those people who uh, are militantly remaining unvaccinated uh, seem to be the subject of loads of misinformation. And there are 
there are many, many entities out there spreading misinformation about vaccines, which seems to me to be tremendously unfortunate. But I do want to say that um, there are a lot of people in complicated situations. So I've got some good friends uh, who have had their uh, children harmed or injured by a vaccine. And it's caused, it's become such a significant part of the story of their family because it has um, kicked off years of difficulty and struggle and trial and, um, and just immense, immense difficulty. So for me personally, I just, I feel pretty strongly about how I see things. Um, but I do realize that there's a larger conversation in which there are other people coming from a variety of perspectives. So I, I, I'm, I'm hesitant to sort of weigh in on things and make, you know, strong declarations in any singular direction. I've got somebody that I know, um, yeah, someone is a personal friend. And um, if there's any kind of a way that I could advocate, I don't know what the organization is going to do for which I work, but um, I would be available and I'll volunteer to advocate for some kind of an exception or understanding or whatever, because um, I know their story. I know where they're coming from. So, John, it seems to me that there is an avenue of advocacy. Um, at the same time, uh, I'm just hesitant to think about and talk about rights kind of uh, ways of thinking and talking for myself. And um, although I do understand that when it comes to the larger state of play in America, there are, there are many, many people who have not been who have not been able to fully participate in American culture and have, and have, have had rights denied. And, um, that's, that's a situation in which it seems to me the church can take up, um, a posture of advocacy and, uh, agitating, uh, with those who are in power for their fair treatment. I just don't know, uh, to what extent that situation is live for people who are refusing vaccines. Um, so, I, I mean, I'd want to understand somebody's story. I want to understand where they're coming from. Why are they hesitant? What sources of information are they uh, are they searching out? And, and that would be a big part of things for me. Uh, oh, yeah, John, you mentioned fascism, rising fascism. Um, just to be clear, I see uh, fascism arising from, um, really in a situation where there are increasingly people demanding that their rights be recognized. Um, and, and fascism is going to arise if it is going to arise, and it's not looking good in this country. Um, but a fascist or authoritarian leader will arise from, um, from among the folks that are demanding that their rights be recognized. I mean, all that defiance and resentment about being told what to do or, or having to conform, um, that is that anger and resentment is part of a larger, just wicked brew of, um, yeah, cultural anger that will um, will see fit to basically uh, turn aside democracy in order to get their way. In order to elect uh, an authoritarian or a strong leader, someone they perceive as a strong, decisive leader, 
who promises to defend their rights. Um, so I do not see it as authoritarian or fascist for companies or organizations to demand that the people that work for it be vaccinated. Uh, to my mind, that is a safety measure. And, um, you know, no one is guaranteed a job. And this, this is sort of the harsh reality of this, um, the situation in which we all exist. Um, if we don't want to um, sort of play by the rules and exist in a way, you know, make decisions in a way that you know, we could be a, a contributor to the life of that organization and to the safety of other people, then, you know, we're the one that's going to have to take the hit. That That's just the reality. And like I said, if there are people or friends uh, in that kind of risky situation, personally, I'm happy to intervene and use whatever kind of leverage I have um, to sort of stand alongside someone like that and, and uh, you know, call out for fair treatment. But that's a, that's a really dicey situation. I mean, you asked, how can we think, um, how can we be image bearers of God in that kind of a situation? First, it seems to me, um, people bear the image of God when they seek the flourishing of community and not when they assert their own individual rights. So personally, that's the first thing. And um, secondly, uh, to look out for the flourishing of others and those who are in difficult circumstances, I want to play some kind of a role of advocacy. But before I did that, I'd want to really understand somebody's story and um, you know what what is the basis of their concern? Is it legitimate misinformation? Which um, the majority of people that I've talked to, that's what's actually going on. They're they've sort of tapped into sources of misinformation. But I want to recognize also that there are other folks that have legitimate concerns, and in those situations, I want to be a friend, an advocate, a listener, and um, someone who uh, is a trustworthy sounding board uh, to listen to someone's legitimate concerns. It's complicated. Um, it's a complicated scene in this country right now. Uh, personally, for me, the way forward seems clear. Um, I'll do whatever it takes uh, to, you know, to maintain the health of my community. Um, but boy, oh boy, beyond the borders of just my own house, things are things are dicey. So I'm following pretty closely this uh, the Mars Hill, uh, th this podcast, the rise and fall of Mars Hill, and. Um, I just find it really, really fascinating, really, really interesting. I've I've got a friend that was um, a part of things out there, and it was such a high profile uh, series of events and an entire uh, very well known phenomenon some years back, and um, it's just interesting to watch it all unfold. And from my perspective, it's a fascinating window into kind of the heart and soul of evangelicalism. So I, I appreciate the way that. Uh, that CT has done this because it's sort of um, at various points kind of tells the backstory of a variety of dynamics in evangelicalism that uh, Mark Driscoll and Mars Hill all embodied. And of course, in a completely extreme way, turned up to 11. Um, anyway, in this last episode was sort of a bonus episode. Um, the series kind of took a little detour to talk a little bit about the story of Josh Harris, who back in the 1990s, was a rising star uh, among evangelicals. He wrote a book called I Kiss Dating Goodbye and um, sort of set the rules 
for how how many Christians thought about uh, sex and marriage and relating to one another and dating and all that kind of stuff. I remember hearing about this when I was doing college ministry back in the 90s and um, was just sort of baffled by it. I was in seminary and doing college ministry and a bunch of students had read it or were reading it, um, had questions about it. And um, it the book sort of arose out of that movement. Um, this this It's hard to really categorize it, but I mean, just this sort of uh, that, that kind of Calvinist wing of evangelicalism um, that was focused on uh, some kind of a traditionalism. And it, it really was an invented traditionalism. It was a traditionalism without any kind of tradition whatsoever. And what I mean by that is it was sort of traditionalism in the sense that Little House on the Prairie uh, represented some kind of tradition. Uh, this kind of idealized view of things that doesn't represent the reality of things at all. And um, th- there was sort of this invented um, practice of courtship that was recommended by this book. And that r- resonated very strongly with with um, you know many evangelicals who saw themselves as sort of defending a kind of tradition. And um, what's so ironic about that is that there's no tradition of that at all. It was completely invented. And um, so it's, it's all like wrapped up in nostalgia, which is sort of the worst way to make a way forward. Uh, there's a brilliant book called um, The Way We Never Were, which is an, al- an analysis of the shape of American families in American history. And the way that we remember the past is completely not how the past was. We idealize the past in order to sort of justify our preferred ways of life in the present. And um, I remember being so struck by that and also struck by the reality that this kind of way of dating and marriage that was supposed to be biblical uh, didn't really resonate with anything that could be found in the Bible. I mean, in the Old Testament, I mean, in, in the Bible, there's simply no way of thinking about uh, arrangements that result in marriage. Um, there, there's no singular way. There's all kinds of weird ways that just arise from from the cultures in which um, events recorded in the Bible uh, are set. And like you get bizarre things like, um, you know, Ruth being told, uh, about Boaz, yeah, jump in the sack with him. He'll know what to do. He'll he'll know what you mean. It's like, well, well uh, I mean, that's a biblical way of moving toward marriage. Or um, when Isaac uh, is trying to find a um, a wife for his son, he he sends a servant back to their hometown, and he happens to meet some guy at a well, and he says, you know, put your hand under my thigh and swear to me an oath. I mean, that's another way, you know, to find out. It's another way to to sort of um, move toward marriage. Most marriages were arranged and the basis was never like compatibility or, or anything like that. It was basically tribal and familial survival. So anyway, I remember when that book came out, it just struck me as very odd. Um, it was kind of invented out of nowhere and certainly did not represent anything that was going on in scripture. And it was sort of key in the whole purity movement and all of that. Um, 
anyway, the reason I'm even just bringing this up is it, it's been very, very interesting to sort of um, to hear Josh Harris talk about uh, you know trying trying to make amends or um, you know apologize for the damage that his book did because there are just so many Christian young people that were damaged by that book, uh, loads of guilt. Um, and, and just unfulfilled promise. So, I mean, uh, you know, one of the dynamics that is going on in the book or that underlies that whole effort is this whole drive to kind of guarantee outcomes, you know, to guarantee a blessed and blissful future. And so many of us uh, get taken in by various schemes because we have that desire we want to we want to sort of guarantee God's best. I want to guarantee God's blessing in the future. So, if I do these things right now, everything will work out for me well in the future. It's kind of a a version of a health and wealth gospel or whatever. Um, it's actually more appropriate to call it a version of a long-standing idolatrous desire on the part of all humans. Everybody wants to guarantee the future. This is one of the bases of of like all religions as they develop in the world. We want to we want to guarantee, I mean in the ancient world, we want to guarantee crops. We want to guarantee uh fertility for our families. Um and so we'll do anything to any kind of a deity uh to guarantee that. We want assured outcomes. And that's the same kind of drive that lies behind that book and so many things that arise within within American culture. Certainly for, um, I think the, the most susceptible people to this are young people who want um, some kind of an assurance that they're going to find the one. There's another illusion. Uh, we're going to find the one and we're going to have a happy marriage and have a blessed family. So if I, if I do it right, if I kind of go through all the steps well, it's going to kind of go on into the future in a way that you know guarantees God's blessing. And uh, yeah, we fall for that all the time, which is tragic. So um, the promise there is, you know, refrain from having sex before you're married, um, do courtship the biblical way, and, um, you know, you're going to guarantee a happy marriage that's fulfilled. Sex will be great. You have the amount of kids that you want. You'll have just a picture-perfect family. Um. So that lays loads of guilt on people uh, who are engaged in any kind of sexual activity outside of marriage. That lays loads of guilt on um, on people who have played by the rules and are well into a marriage and things are not working out for one reason or another, or people just feel profoundly the incompatibility with their partner. And all of this, of course, leads to all kinds of questioning God, burnout, um, disillusionment, all kinds of questions, and in most of in most of the the Christian circles where stuff like this is, um, you know, dispensed, they're not the kinds of communities where you can raise those questions or where you can be honest about the fact that this isn't working. Um, so anyway, all that to say, uh, I've heard a number of podcasts over the the last couple of months where. Um, Josh Harris has talked about his attempts to apologize and make amends. And um, 
What I thought was most fascinating about this, the that episode, what I thought was most fascinating about it um, was the dynamic of celebrity. It was just so interesting. And the the host of the podcast, I thought, kind of put his finger on it because um, so Josh Harris left his church some years ago, um, began to see that uh, there, there were some meltdowns in the church that he was a part of, uh, cover-ups of um, um, instances of sexual abuse. Uh, also, his book has started receiving criticism, so he left the church, went to seminary to kind of rethink things. In the process of all of that, uh, his marriage came apart, and uh, he uh, claimed to identify no longer as Christian and all of that, and is, was you know deconstructed his faith, etc., and um, I certainly have, you know, all kinds of sympathy for people who go through processes like this. That's These are just the normal courses of life. I don't think, I mean, I just don't stand in any place of judgment on any anybody's life narrative and where it takes them at all. But what was so fascinating was the fact that um, Josh Harris was sort of raised in this climate of evangelical celebrity. and as he went through these various stages, it's almost like he went through them uh, without ever having left behind or questioned the dynamics of evangelical celebrity. Like he still went through all this very publicly um, on social media. And um, on this podcast, they were talking about how it is that, you know, Josh Harris now having deconstructed um, is offering, has created this curriculum for people going through uh, a process of deconstruction and how they can go through that well. And, you know, you, it's for sale. And the host of the podcast was put this question to him, and I thought it was really, really, really astute and asked him whether or not he's ever sort of left that mode. Is he... He's always been this kind of um, like influencer or a kind of an evangelist. Is he now, uh, has the message changed, but has his mode never really changed? Is he still this kind of evangelical celebrity, but just talking about different stuff? I thought that was really, really fascinating. And it just got me thinking about the character of evangelicalism and its relationship to celebrity. Because the celebritization of ministry is is something that is just so obvious everywhere. And in thinking more about this, um, I was thinking the other day that this is such a massive issue for evangelicalism. Um, and it's not something that is recent. The entire culture was founded upon a sort of public relations reality. And so celebrity has been baked in from the very beginning. It's not something that is a recent development. I know I, I hear people who are you know, kind of committed to evangelicalism and who are very thoughtful people and will say things like, a generation ago, it wasn't like this. A generation ago, there weren't people like this. Uh, there was a movement that was um, had integrity to it and all that kind of stuff. And I am not so sure that that's the case. If you go back to the roots of evangelicalism, um, which really, as, as a modern phenomenon, 
the roots of it are, I mean, well, actually you can go all the way back to George Whitfield, who's sort of the first evangelical celebrity, this well-known figure uh, traveling throughout the States, preaching and drawing massive crowds. And everybody is drawn to him as this celebrity figure. Um, and I'm, I'm sure that there's a line right from Whitfield to uh, the Bible conferences of the late 19th century. So in the late 19th century, um, in the summer times, people would would travel to a variety of camps, you know, in the Northeast, uh, some in the Midwest, and would would go to hear well known Bible preachers and would stay at, at these camps for a week, and you would hear you're just Bible teaching or preaching, and these were well known preachers, and you know, in advance of all this, of course, there would be advertising sent out through you know, evangelical networks and denominational networks, magazines, etc. And um, those gatherings led to the development of evangelicalism because all these figures that were getting together every summer uh, sort of said, hey, let's, let's build, let's, let's network more closely. You know, we've got some who are Presbyterians, some who are Baptists, some who are Congregationalists. You know, let's, let's build, let's, let's um, sort of forge these new networks. And, you know, they published magazines and, um, you know, the sort of the Bible preaching conferences increased and these networks started to solidify and form in the 19 uh in the early 1900s certainly throughout the 20s and 30s and 40s and um you know all these magazines promoted their uh their colleagues these other big preachers so uh, and then of course radio took over um and churches began to kind of identify themselves with these big names you know, we're this kind of a church or we're that kind of a church. And uh, denominations uh, began to weaken. And these these networks that were across denominations began to gain strength. And then Bible colleges and other schools that were not necessarily affiliated with a denomination also began to grow. And uh, many of these were, were founded in that era. So just to say, this is not a recent phenomenon. Um, all of these dynamics of evangelical celebrity seeking to cultivate a platform um, you know, to be an influencer or to, to have influence or to have impact, all of these are well-worn social patterns and cultural practices that are at the very heart of evangelicalism. It's not a recent deviation, um, which is, I mean, to my mind, uh, should make us sort of lift up the hood on evangelicalism and find out, you know, what are all the corrupt desires and ambitions and ways of thinking and, and uh, ways of relating and all the cultural practices that are corrupt and that do we need to sort of discard? Um, anyway, I, I have a, a chapter in my book, um, Power and Weakness, where I talk a little bit about the celebritization of ministry. And I think it's really insidious, not only because there are these major figures that people look to and identify with and come to sort of have a kind of cultivated devotion to. Um, this affects ministry at the local level. This affects so many pastors and so many churches uh, where pastors are sort of drawn into uh, seeking to have the kind of influence that so-and-so major speaker has or so-and-so YouTube pastor has. And um, it can be, I mean, people leave churches 
because you know our pastor is not as interesting or compelling or as well spoken as that YouTube guy or the guy that I saw at that one conference, and it just it affects local life, and pastors then are drawn into those dynamics of celebrity, cultivating their image and the image of the church on their website or Facebook page or whatever, uh, in order to be um, as attractive as those super attractive influencers or people with impact or whatever. All these dynamics are so illusory and are just so vapid. And um, sadly, they they bring about um, kind of the, the hollowing out of community life. They they force pastors into modes of life in relation to their churches where they don't allow themselves to be known and cared for. They cultivate inauthenticity. And um, these dynamics have done a lot of damage uh, you know, to evangelical communities. Um, I think you could, I mean, draw that out and extend out that reality and start to talk about all the ways um, that church communities become toxic communities out of these kinds of desires, because inevitably, when there are um, when there are sort of uh, warts that develop that demand honesty and transparency and vulnerability and practices like confession of sin and reconciliation, uh, if there's a community that has already fallen into the dynamics of celebrity and image maintenance and public relations honesty and transparency and vulnerability are out the window and a community will seek to protect its image. And if a pastor is wrapped up in that, they'll protect the pastor, they'll protect leaders, protect the brand. Um, and church leaders will behave in those ways, even though they may never have used terms like the brand, they will, they will do that. Um, which is an absolute tragedy. So anyway, that series I, th I find really, really fascinating, not merely because it's salacious uh, revelation about all the things that went on at Mars Hill, but because it's a window into the heart and soul of evangelicalism and evangelical culture and all of the corrupt desires and um, the quests that we find ourselves on to grow and be strong and, you know, um, communities that are seen to be something uh, instead of just some plain old gathering of fairly unremarkable people where there's no buzz. Um, and what I'm interested in is before a community ever becomes a toxic community, what are like way back up the road, like what are the desires from years ago that led us to this point? Because there was the seeds were planted way back then that led to this fruit. This is not some kind of a, a recent thing that just developed. So anyway, Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, check it out. I think there's some really fascinating uh, stuff there. I want to tell you about a book. It's called Reign of Terror, How the 9-11 Era Destabilized America and Produced Trump. Its author is Spencer Ackerman, and it's published by Viking. Ackerman is a journalist who focuses on issues of national security and is a past winner of the Pulitzer Prize in journalism for his work on global surveillance disclosures. 
Over the past few weeks, we've seen the withdrawal of the U.S. from Afghanistan, and it's been a shock to see the country fall to the Taliban in such a short period of time. But really, it's only a surprise to many of us who can afford to spend our time over the last two decades paying attention to things other than Afghanistan. The harsh reality is that there was no other way that this was all going to go. I'm fascinated by cultural and intellectual histories, and Ackerman provides an account of how the events of 9-11 and the ensuing war on terror shaped American culture over the last 20 years. And it's a harrowing tale, as riveting as it is disturbing. In the wake of 9-11, Congress provided to then-President Bush open-ended powers to conduct wars in two far-off countries that has since spread to a number of other places in the world that I had no idea about. And the lack of any clearly identified goals meant that there would never be an end, no clear victory and no clear defeat. President Bush took the nation into war on terror, a war effort to rid the world of evil. These abstract and nebulous goals meant that the U.S. would be mired in forever wars. And Ackerman details the catastrophic effects that these wars have had on millions of innocent people in other parts of the world and have contributed to the polarization in American culture. Ackerman tells the story of the rise of the surveillance state in which intelligence agencies secretly began collecting the digital communication data of American citizens, which has now been sold in a marketplace dominated by massive digital corporations. He also details the ongoing horrors of people detained on the slightest suspicion and held at black sites throughout the world and tortured endlessly, resulting in more than a few deaths. He tells the story of Adam Hassoun, who never committed a crime or act of violence, but was held captive at Guantanamo Bay and passed through the prison system for over 15 years in various other places. Ackerman connects the way that Americans have come to view Muslims and other non-white people to the way that Americans now view all immigrants, even those arriving to the U.S. from South America. And the war machine unleashed against the Middle East has had a dramatic effect on how the U.S. polices non-white people in American cities. The war on terror has not merely been a disaster for people in the Middle East. It has contributed to the profound political and cultural cleavages we see in American culture, and it has caused America to become a tragically inhospitable place for non-white people. And I must say that no one politician or military figure and no single political party comes off all that well in Ackerman's narrative. Presidents Bush, Obama, Trump, and Biden have played significant roles in wreaking devastation, death, and trauma on so many people, along with the tragic destruction of creation. This paragraph in which Ackerman details the endless nightmare of the war on terror nearly took my breath away. I'm quoting, in response to 9-11, America had invaded and occupied two countries, bombed four others for years, killed at least 801,000 people, a full total may never be known, terrified millions more, tortured hundreds, detained thousands, reserved unto itself the right to create a global surveillance dragnet disposed of its veterans with cruel indifference, called an entire global religion criminal or treated it that way, made migration into a crime, and declared most of its actions to be legal and constitutional. It created at least 21 million refugees and spent as much as $6 trillion on its operations. Through it all, America said other people, the ones staring down the barrel of the war on terror, 
were the barbarians. This is an important book that every American should read, to my mind, since all of this was done in our name. I've been shaken over the past few weeks as we've been using in our church the prayer, uh, the prayer of confession that comes from enriching our worship, which is a supplement to the Book of Common Prayer. The prayer of confession includes this line. We repent of the evil that enslaves us, the evil we have done, and the evil done on our behalf. As a citizen of the United States, all of this trauma and devastation is on me. It's on us. The politicians that we elect and the decisions that are made reflect the will of the people. First steps of repentance certainly include learning about what has been done, lamenting, confessing our manifold sins and our proclivity to meeting violence with violence. Lord have mercy. This book is just stunning. It tells the truth about ourselves and about our current national situation, and I hope that many will take it up and read it. The book is by Spencer Ackerman, and it's called Reign of Terror, How the 9-11 Era Destabilized America and Produced Trump, published by Viking. Get it from an independent bookstore. So I want to talk about Romans 3, 1 to 20, uh, which is not a terribly long stretch of text, but I want to leave verses 21 to 26 aside for now because it's a really, really complicated uh, portion of text that I want to take the time to unpack a little bit um, just because I think that, yeah, that everybody recognizes that verses 21 to 26 of chapter 3 are critical for Paul's argument in Romans, but it's, um, man, there's some tangled stuff in there and it's really important to get at, so I want to take some time. Anyway, just a summary of where we've been so far. Um, Keep in mind that chapters one to three of Romans are not the first part of a gospel presentation. All the statements in this portion of text and Paul's entire argument, all of this is directed toward the community problem. And the community problem is that in the Roman house churches, there's division. And Paul is about solving that division. And the division is between uh, what Paul calls the strong and the weak. The strong are those Gentiles that are convinced that they can be um, part of the salvation of the God of Israel revealed in Jesus Christ by remaining in the ethnicity that they are. And the weak are Gentiles that are convinced that they have to become Jewish somehow, take on a Jewish identity, be related to Torah as Israelites, or, or I should say as Jews were, were related to Torah. Uh, they have to have that same kind of way of being in order to participate in the salvation that God has brought about in Jesus. So um, the community conflict would have been really grave because the center of the community gathering as as church is the meal. And if um, people can no longer eat with each other because they have an understanding that, um, you know, now that we're Jewish, we can't sit down with a at a meal with you who are Gentile sinners, um, that just creates division in these churches, which is devastating. So um, that's what Paul's getting at. And in chapters uh, one to three, Paul is confronting that division. Um, in chapter two, um, I talked about how um, Paul basically just drops a bomb and he confronts everybody who's in the Roman churches who is judging other people 
But especially chapter two is a confrontation of the weak, of those Gentiles that think that they have to become Jewish. And in that chapter, uh, Paul has undermined their claim uh, to have escaped what they are seeing as the long slide into idolatry among the Gentiles and their descent into moral degradation. Um, The weak imagine that they've escaped that, that that's not their identity and that they are in some kind of a place of superiority over against the strong. Um, In some way, they've got like an inside track with God. They are the righteous ones. They are the godly ones. And certainly they are not sinners, you know, like the Gentiles, those those Gentile sinners. Uh, We're not going to hang out with them because that's going to make us unclean. And Paul reminds them that they share the very same history. Like you, you people come from the same mass of humanity that has all behaved in that way. So if a Gentile identity puts one outside of Christ and is worthy of condemnation, then you are condemning yourselves because you are actually Gentiles. Or if a Gentile identity makes somebody a second-class Christian, then you are condemning yourselves as second-class Christians. That's the force of Paul's confrontation. Um, And as I had said in the previous episode, it seems pretty clear that um, Paul regards it as impossible for a Gentile to convert at all. And that seems to be the assumption that underlies uh, the argument in the in the basically the second half of chapter two. To, to attempt to become Jewish means transgression of the law. Like in the very in, in, in being circumcised as an adult male, that's a transgression of the law. So you're breaking the law, you're breaking Torah in some kind of an attempt to be loyal to it or in some kind of attempt to be rightly related to it, which just is insane. It makes no sense at all. Um, Because in Paul's mind, it breaks the command to be circumcised on the eighth day. And that's impossible for anybody that is older than eight days. And it wouldn't even be possible uh, for a Gentile baby um, because Jewish identity was... um, was ascribed to some, you know, a Jewish male that is circumcised on the eighth day that is born to a woman who was impregnated uh, by a man who had been circumcised. So um, anyway, uh, so Paul undercuts all the, all of the claims of the weak in chapter two in pretty devastating fashion and in pretty brilliant fashion, uh, arguing from uh, from Torah itself and from Christian identity. And now that he has brought, by the, at the end of chapter two, now that Paul has brought the weak uh, to this kind of like cul-de-sac in their argument, um, he takes on this new rhetorical device that really we see continues on through the rest of Romans. And there are some long stretches where it, it doesn't occur. Um, but Romans has like loads of these questions. And what Paul is doing is he's using this ancient rhetorical uh, device known as a diatribe. And a diatribe is not like a modern diatribe, you know, it's sort of a screed. Um, that's in ancient rhetoric. It was sort of like an educational technique uh, where a teacher would set up an imaginary conversation partner. And this imaginary conversation partner would like raise questions or would lodge objections, which the teacher can then answer. And that whole process would further draw out the topic. So that is what Paul is doing with all of these questions. So um, there's a sense in which 
this is not Paul asking all these questions. He's um, he's assuming a standpoint or a view of things. And that perspective from which all these questions come is the perspective of the weak. Those Gentiles in Rome who are convinced that they need to become Jewish in order to be fully Christian. Um, so all these questions start in 3.1. And um, there's a series of questions in 3.1 to 9 where Paul basically engages in dialogue with the interlocutor, with the conversation partner, with um, this one who's giving voice to uh, possible objections. Maybe none of these objections are even up and running in Rome, or maybe the weak would never really say these things or ask these kinds of questions. But Paul, in order to sort of uh, fully draw out everything that he's wanting to sort of lay out for the Roman Christians, he's playing this role. So uh, what I want to do is to just identify in 3.1 to 9, what voice is the voice of Paul and what voice is the voice of the interlocutor? Um, so I think it's important to kind of pull those apart. And um, I've been really helped in this by uh, my friend Rafael Rodriguez's work, um, uh, If You Call Yourself a Jew, which is his treatment of Romans. It's not so much a commentary, although it could function as a commentary. It's really, really good. Um, but he kind of goes through all of Romans and shows the different um, rhetorical techniques that Paul uses. And in one place, he has, well, when he deals with 3, 1, and 9, he deals with, or I should say, he identifies who is speaking. So I've uh, taken his reconstruction. I've made some modifications to it, but I just want to credit Rafi, um, Rafael's work here because it's been uh, really, really helpful as long uh, sorry, as well as a number of other people. And I mentioned last week, um, Matt Thiessen's work, which um, he's got two books on uh, circumcision and they're just brilliant. It's just fascinating work. So uh, if you're in biblical studies, um, I mean, they're heavy duty dealing with loads of Jewish literature and um, some ancient textual work to show, um, you know, certain readings of texts. Uh, it's, it's, it's just brilliant stuff. Anyway, this first, uh, this initial question in verse one um, comes because Paul has basically uh, relativized Jewish identity in chapter two. Like by the end of chapter two, it's like, what's, well, then what's special about being a Jew? Because the weak are drawn to, to adopt a Jewish identity because that's the, the historic identity of biblical Israel. That's the historical people of God have been Jewish. And the first generation of Christians were all Jews. The story of Acts um, narrates this. Luke narrates this in his um, in his narrative. Um, I'm trying to think of when the first Gentiles came about. I mean, all of the the you know the major leaders are Jewish. Uh, the the church is sort of birthed in Judaism. Jesus's ministry is there in Galilee and Judea, uh, down in Jerusalem. Um, everything kind of comes from that direction and is located on that land. And the first Christian movement were all Jews. Um, so to be connected to this faith, uh, it, there's some kind of uh, prestige or something special about being Jewish. And the weak are drawn, these Gentiles are drawn to take on that identity for some reason. And so the question comes after Paul's um, relativizing 
Jewish identity. That is to say, it doesn't matter whether or not someone is Jewish or Gentile. Um, that is going to come as a little bit of a shock to the weak. And so the question would come from then, well, then what's the advantage of the Jew or what is the benefit of circumcision? And just the way that this question is asked is one of the reasons why I think that the audience in Rome is not mixed. It's not Jew and Gentile. Um, to me, it seems pretty obvious that there are some Jews in some of the communities there, uh, some Jewish Christians in some of the Christian communities there, because there are Jews among the greetings in Romans 16. But this is one of the reasons why I think the weak are made up of Gentiles who imagine that they need to become Jewish. Because um, the Jew is put in the third person. Like the question comes, well, then what is the advantage of that person over there? A Jew is not asking, well, then what is the what is our advantage? I mean, it's not our, there's no ownership of it. Um, this, this question comes from somebody that's pointing to that Jew over there. Um, and again, as I say that, we need to recognize, um, need to be very careful how we uh, speak about people who have been historically persecuted and have been dismissive, uh, have been spoken about dismissively. I don't mean that in any sense at all. Um, I don't mean uh, to, to sound like that in, in any sense at all. But the question comes then, what is the advantage of the Jew or what is the benefit of circumcision? Certainly there had to be some, certainly there's some connection to the God of Israel, isn't there? And Paul answers, much in every way, for indeed, primarily, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. And what he's getting at there is saying, yes, indeed, of course, Jews are in a privileged position because they are the people that were commissioned, you know, they were given Torah, and uh, it's very strategic that Paul says that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. These are the people that heard from God, and it was a trust given to them because Israel was called to be the national agent of the reclamation of the nations. They were to be the national agent whereby God called all of humanity to himself, um, whereby God redeemed the nations. And it was their task to sort of partner with the nations to discover together how to be Israel and the nations who together worshipped the one true creator God. That was their task, which is an overwhelmingly um, ambitious and intimidating task. It was just purely overwhelming, uh, which is why biblical Israel um, never carried it out. This tiny little liberated slave nation of weak people um, called by God to draw in these powerful empires, and that's just really intimidating. So let's not Let's not look down our noses at biblical Israel. Um, certainly, the church has its own share of failures in our day. These people were intensely human, and the task was, um, yeah, is pretty intimidating. So Israel and, and Jews are definitely in a situation of privilege. So the question next comes from the interlocutor. Well, what then? Or so what? Uh, or here's my next question. If some of them, or if certain ones, were unfaithful to that commission, uh, some translations translate this as like unbelieving, which is, oh, it's just terrible. Because that, that sort of leads readers to think that what Paul 
you know, what this interlocutor is, is, is um, asking about or what Paul is talking about is the generation of Jews to which Jesus showed up. And when they heard the message, they just didn't believe it. Like they didn't believe the gospel. If someone, if some of these did not believe the gospel. And I don't think that that's what this question is meant to get at whatsoever. Uh, the term belief uh, can also be translated as unfaithful. And I think that that's exactly what Paul is getting at. That's exactly what this question is getting at, because it's sort of a very close synonym to that word. Well, no, it's the same root word with the uh, the term above in in the previous verse, when Paul says that they were entrusted, they were like enfaithed with the oracles of God. Well, what if some were unfaithful? And what the question is getting at is basically biblical Israel, because the in Paul's view, the Jews that were contemporaneous uh, to him that um, were disobedient to Jesus are, are in a train of faithless biblical Israel. Not that they didn't believe, but they were unfaithful to that mission of being, um, yeah, of being the faithfulness of God to the nations, of being uh, the righteousness of God within the world, and of embodying the character of God within the world. So the question is, um, if say if biblical Israel was unfaithful, their unfaithfulness will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? Well, of course not. Um, God is faithful. That's that's his character. The God of Israel is faithful. And the identity of Israel was to be the national expression on earth of God's faithful character. Um, the nations having been led astray uh, into idolatry and the subsequent descent into moral degradation, that is not something that God is content with. And scripture tells the story, the scriptures of Israel tell the story of God's commitment to reclaim the nations and to bring them back into his blessing, um, driven by his faithfulness. So, and that would be depicted by Israel. So if Israel was unfaithful, well, does that mean that God is unfaithful? And for Paul, of course, the answer is not at all. May it never be. Um, because God must be true. He must be true and every person a liar. Um, and what Paul is getting at is a lot of that language back in chapter one, where um, uh, humanity changed or surrendered or altered the truth of God by a lie, um, because humanity was supposed to be the embodiment of God's truth, of God's faithfulness in it, in, in humanity's performance of um, God's character on earth, which would have looked like caring for creation participating well in community, bringing about community flourishing and creation's flourishing, creation itself, um, the, the flourishing of creation itself. Um, but every person has become a liar and um, every person has bought the lie. And it doesn't matter if all of humanity is not embodying God's truth and God's faithfulness, God's character remains the same. Um, and then he cites this Old Testament text so that you may be justified or vindicated or shown to be right in your words and will prevail when you judge. Uh, so the next question comes um, because the, uh, the thought from the previous question is, well, if, if human failure to reflect the character of God um, doesn't diminish 
the character of God, um, or, or I should say, if humanity fails to reflect the character of God, does that diminish the character of God? That's kind of the the underlying uh, sense of that question. And in a sense, the interlocutor is kind of trapping Paul because it, then the interlocutor or this this conversation partner that Paul has set up then follows with this question. Okay, if our unrighteousness or our adikia or our being sort of trapped in this way of being that is that is injustice, that is unrighteousness, if our unrighteousness establishes the righteousness or the justice of God, what will we say? Is it the case that God who bears wrath upon us, uh, is he unjust to do so? So this is the interlocutor. And what he's saying basically here is, okay, Paul, the big point is that God wants his character displayed within creation, right? Yeah, that's right. Okay, well, if God is still righteous, if God is displayed as righteous in our unrighteousness, then why is God judging us? Because what the end result of what he wants is his character to be seen. And um, Paul sort of interjects here. I think that that's, that statement comes from him. Uh, I'm speaking as a human, or I'm speaking in human terms. I think this is kind of a little bit of a reminder. Look, y'all, this is what sort of a disobedient human would say. This is not coming from me. I'm sort of setting up this rhetorical device, conversing with an interlocutor. And Paul answers, may never be. Otherwise, how will God judge the world? Um, God is not going to be unjust. He's going to basically uh, bring about justice wherever there has been injustice. And um, that's his task. And injustice does not um, display within the world God's justice. That's not how this whole thing is supposed to work. And uh, the interlocutor then responds with something of like a repeat here. Uh, but if the truth of God by my lie abounds to his glory, why still am I also being judged as a sinner? So again, the weak are, this is, I'm not sure that the weak are actually arguing this. Paul is setting this up to kind of draw any kind of objections to what he's saying out to like an absurd end. Um, but the larger scenario that should be kept in mind here is that God's um, God's intentions, really from the beginning, Genesis 1, are that his image bearers genuinely bear his image within creation. That is that they reflect the way he is through fruitful human activity. And when they do, God's justice will be seen and his truth will be seen. And um, when all that has just gone wrong, uh, later when God calls Israel, Israel is the expression of his commitment to creation, his pledge, his faithfulness to creation. And Israel would have um, basically performed publicly God's faithfulness, um, but they failed to do so. So what's interesting is uh, the questions I don't, uh, the questions don't really, the, um, the dikaios, the justice and the truth are what all of humanity, all the, you know, before Israel ever came on the scene, all of humanity was supposed to portray that within the world. Israel was supposed to portray uniquely God's faithfulness. So what I think is interesting 
is that the question comes about certain ones being unfaithful, um, sort of them out there, again, with Jews. Uh, and when it comes to us and we and I, um, the interlocutor goes back to truth and uh, glory, um, which is, in, or sorry, uh, righteousness, truth, and then um, abounding to God's glory, because those are the things that all of humanity, um, all ethnicities were supposed to be sort of participating in that. Anyway, just another reason why I think um, Paul is talking to um, a Gentile here. And there's a sense in which um, Paul has already assumed here that he has shown the weak that it's inappropriate for them to think that they can take on a Jewish identity because the interlocutor is now speaking basically as a human, not as a Jew, um, as, as just sort of a generic human. Hope that makes some kind of sense. So the question, but if the truth of God abounds um, by my lie to his glory, like, isn't that what God wants to be glorified by humanity? Well, if that happens uh, by my lie, then why am I still being judged as a sinner? Um, that seems to be unjust because the end is being met. That is uh, the truth of God abounding to his glory. Uh, and I think that it is still the interlocutor talking here when uh, he says, and why not say, just as we are being blasphemed and, as, and just as some claim that we say, let us do evil in order that good may come. The person who says that their condemnation is just. I think that that is, um, that this is Paul putting words in the mouth of his conversation partner. This is not Paul talking. And um, <clears throat> I think that this is something of a revelation about word about how word has gotten to Paul that um, there's a certain way that the strong are articulating things about the weak, and Paul has heard about that. Um, that the strong in responding to the weak are basically saying, "Look, according to your logic, you're sinning so that grace would abound, um, or you're basically uh, doing evil in order that good may come." Um, you're trying to bring about a flourishing community, but you're saying that the way to get there is uh, to take this inappropriate step of becoming Jewish. And the word has gotten to Paul, and the weak are probably upset about that. And so this interlocutor is saying, yeah, we've been blasphemed as if we're saying, you know, let us do evil in order that good may come. And whoever's saying that about us, their condemnation is just. Um because I don't think that that's the kind of thing that would be coming from Paul. I think that that is, um, this is something that is coming from the impulses that arise from the weak. Just to say, to this point, up to verse 8, um, this is tangled stuff. And uh, a lot of commentators say things like, you know, when Paul gets to this point, he kind of loses the plot. He loses the line of his argument. Like, what's he even getting at? It's very difficult to disentangle and uh, to identify. So I um, hope that made some kind of sense. But by the time you get to verse 9, um, the Gentile then asks this question. What then? Are we at a disadvantage? Like, is it a bummer? I mean, are, are we sort of second-class citizens to be Gentiles? Or are, are we at a disadvantage before God in being Gentiles? Are we worse off? And um, 
Like, is there, we thought that there was advantage to becoming Jewish. Um, is it the case that Jews are actually better than us? And are we disadvantaged by being Gentile? And sort of the clincher here for Paul is not at all, for we have already accused both Jews and Greeks to all be under sin. That is, um, all of humanity, Jews and Greeks, are, and 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 specifically, I should say, what Paul has in mind, I got to keep reminding myself um, that all the statements that Paul's making are about the conflict in the Roman house churches. So um, every group in the Roman house churches are all united under sin. And when Paul says that, he's talking about sin as a cosmic power, um, sin as this kind of active agent. In Romans 5 and Romans 7, we'll have a lot more to say that about that down the road. But certainly in Romans 5 through 8, but especially in 5 and 7, um, Paul attributes to sin and death uh, personal characteristics, like sin entered and sin plots against the Roman Christians, and sin has aims and sin seizes an opportunity or takes advantage. So sin is portrayed as this active cosmic power at work, and it is a cosmic power that has enslaved all those who are in the Roman house churches. And because what Paul's trying to do here, this is part of his larger rhetorical project throughout the whole letter, um, but certainly from uh, 1 to 326, um, what Paul is doing is uniting all of the Roman Christians together under condemnation. That is their past. That's their collective past. And what he's going to do is unite them all together in God's work of salvation. Um, the problem in the Roman house churches is disunity and division and fracture. And what Paul is doing is saying, you all share the same story. And uh, from 118 to 320, they all share the dark story of um, human rebellion and uh, of humanity falling into this way of being where they are failing uh, to properly image God. Now, when Paul says in verse 9 that he's already accused or has already uh, concluded that both Jews and Greeks are all under the cosmic power of sin, um, it's, it's, it's hard to know what exactly Paul means by saying that. Uh, is he getting at how it is that he is including his fellow Jews in his judgment against all humanity in 118 to 32? Um or maybe that he's referring back to his statement in 3.3 that all, or that Israel had been unfaithful to its commission to be a light to the nations. Um, either way, Jews are certainly condemned under sin by the list of Old Testament quotations that follow. Um, but it may be that he has in mind that um, not only Gentiles, but Jews share in the very same human error that Gentiles have committed. And I'm about to prove that to you because in verses uh, 10 to 18, these are expressions of condemnation from Torah that are all totalizing. That is, um, there is a constant repetition of all, or there is no one. So it, it's, it, it completely wraps, all of these judgments wrap their arms around everybody that they're talking about. And as Paul says in verse 19, these texts that I'm citing are in reference to those who are within the law. That is, those who are Jews. So... Um, for the Gentiles there in the Roman house churches to imagine 
that adopting a Jewish identity is any kind of safety or gives them any kind of priority in the people of God, that's a total illusion. Uh, one of the things that's interesting about this, this list of quotations is that, especially in verses 13 to 18, a load of them involve body parts, which I think is very intentional because so much of what Paul has to say involves, I mean, there's just that the narrative substructure of Romans involves the body. And I think that there's some ambiguity or some kind of layering in Paul's language about the body because it is, is it's in reference to like the human, whereby Paul means all humans. And also not only like sort of what has happened to the human um, or to humanity, um, but body language in Romans also has to do with communities, um, you know, a, a body that is a community. So like in Romans 12, that, you know, there's a body with many parts or many members and um, body talk just pops up so much in Romans. And um, one of the places it does that is here in chapter three, where body parts have been hijacked by sin and have been infected by sin which is really, really fascinating uh, because in Romans 8, Paul's going to talk about how one of the things that Jesus did in, in his death um, or w- what God did in Christ's death was to put to death the body of sin. That is to say, um, this entity that is called like sin in the flesh or, or this reality that um, sin has hijacked bodies and is holding them enslaved that reality God has killed in the death of Christ so that now um, spirits can be freed and um, kind of inhabit uh, the fullness of the new creation now. And then in one in the future day, bodies can enter into that very same liberation. So bodies were hijacked by sin. Christ as a body liberated bodies. And that's, um, I don't know, that's a, that's a really interesting kind of uh, aspect to the narrative substructure of Romans. And it kind of, you know, this is sort of one touch point or one waypoint of that narrative trajectory. One other interesting thing about all these passages that Paul quotes is that in all of them, they come from contexts in which Israelites are, are oppressing other people, which is really fascinating. Uh, and I wonder if uh, Paul... Um, chose these texts because the people claiming a Jewish identity in Rome are actually uh, oppressing in some way those who are maintaining a, uh, a Gentile identity. I don't know. I don't know if that's exactly the case, but um, I just assume that Paul is always more thoughtful than we give him credit for, and uh, that very well may be the case. Well, after that long list of quotations, Paul gets to verses 19 and 20, and he draws the conclusion that Israel um, also stands condemned. So any effort on the part of the Gentiles in Rome to to find some kind of assurance by a Torah-shaped identity, by becoming Jewish, gets them nowhere. So why even do it? And then he says in verse 20 that uh, no one is set right before God. No one is justified before God based on works of law. That is to say, based on uh, deeds of Torah, a Jewish way of life, a Jewish identity. That's not 
the basis of justification, as Paul has said in chapter two. Um, and then he, he makes this kind of mystifying statement for through the law, through Torah comes the knowledge of sin. And I'm still thinking about what sense to take that in. I don't know if he means um, through the law comes the knowledge of sin as a cosmic power, uh, which would make sense because that is narrated in Genesis 4 uh, when God has a conversation with Cain and tells Cain that sin is crouching at your door and his desire is for you. So already sin is personified in the early chapters of Genesis. And so when Paul personifies sin as a, um, a cosmic tyrant um, or a cosmic uh, entity that, that exercises a kind of lordship, he's just drawing on scripture. Um, or is Paul saying that uh, Torah is where we find that all humanity is captive to sin? So if you want to find some kind of refuge in Torah, it's not going to give you anything that you're looking for. Um, what I don't think Paul is talking about here is some kind of a Lutheran or Reformed uh, dynamic whereby, you know, the law reveals sin. Uh, you know, the law shows you that you're a sinner or that you're sinful in a, in a sort of a contemporary way um, as part of kind of a law gospel contrast. Um <clears throat> I was taught this in, I was part of a reformed Bible study of Romans a long time ago, almost 30 years ago. And uh, this is the first time I ever encountered that law gospel contrast in which the law plays this terrible role um, where it kind of beats up sinners. It has this high demand and um, shows you that you can't keep it and then drives you to Christ where you then find the relief of salvation. Um, That kind of makes a sort of kind of sense on some theological constructs. It just does violence actually to loads of texts in Paul and in the rest of scripture. So I I don't think that that is actually at all what Paul is talking about. Um, Scripture either informs about sin's lordship uh, or it informs that humanity is captive to sin. Either way, I'm not having decided finally what Paul is getting at. Uh, I'll stop there. And just to say, to this point, Paul has undercut uh, the claims of the weak to have any sort of superior status over against the strong. And um, at 21, 321 and following, he's going to turn and give the good news. To this point, 118 uh, to 20, everybody in the Roman churches is united in that dark past of enslavement to sin. And now Paul is going to turn the corner and say, And that's fine because you are all also united in the work of God to save humanity in Christ. You're together. You're one group in that whole big story. So don't split up into factions and destroy each other and basically do the work of the cosmic power of sin, uh, which is scheming to devastate your communities through division. Um, But we'll get to that next time. Uh, Just to say in 118 to 320, it is not the case that that Paul's aim is to merely show that everybody's a sinner. The contours of his argument are more more particular than that. Um, All of humanity has failed to be truly human um, because all of humanity has sort of surrendered its role as image of God uh, to properly care for creation and to bring about the flourishing of humanity along with creation. Um, 
that is also a surrender of the truth of God. So true, you know, God's commitment to creation, uh, which he wanted to see depicted through humanity, that's been surrendered. Image of God, which is sort of synonymous, that's been surrendered. And Israel called to be the faithfulness of God within the world, that's been lost because Israel has not been faithful. So what has to happen is somehow God has to recover um, the dikaios, the dikaisune, the the justice or the righteousness. God has to set that right in some way, and God has to set right the pistis issue. That is the faithfulness that Israel was supposed to portray within the world. And what's interesting is that in three twenty one and twenty six, Paul um, sort of draws out the contours of just how God has done that in Christ, which is really cool. Well, the kids are up. They're running around, and uh, Sarah's on her way home. We're going to grab some fish tacos and sit outside in uh, the the late afternoon sun on this glorious final day of my summer. Faculty work day starts tomorrow, and um, I'm just hoping that, uh, well, it'll be fine. Not too down about it. I sometimes get down about the start of a new school year. Um, but um, ever since I began teaching seminary, I, it's a blast. Uh, we start biblical hermeneutics in uh, not um, not this in a couple weeks, actually in about three weeks. And I'm also teaching a, a class uh, on the Greek exegesis of Paul's letter. So I'm. It's actually going to be a great, great semester. Anyway, it's lovely where I am. I'm going to enjoy this evening. I hope that where you are, it's a beautiful day. Don't let it get away.